Welcome to Body Liberation for All. I'm your host, Dahlia Kinsey. This show is dedicated to bringing you all of the wellness and self-care tips that you need to live your best life. Unlike other sources, this one is focused on BIPOC and LGBTQIA plus people. There are a ton of self-help shows out there, but how many are designed just for us? So if you're ready for all of the self-help and none of the white or het supremacy, you've come to the right place. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited for my queer folk, my trans, people of color. Let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go. Sexuality is a natural, normal part of the human experience. There is so much stigma around sexual expression, though, that some people don't even attempt to tap into this facet of their being, and they're limited as far as how this can influence their wellness. Anything that involves consenting adults, adults that are old enough to consent and lucid enough to do so, is perfectly fine. But we have so many rules around what acceptable expressions of sexuality look like that a lot of us are missing out on its healing power. This is why I wanted to have today's guest on the show. Rebecca, aka Diva Jarling, is an expert in helping people remove the shame around their interests, maybe their kinks, their sexual expression in general, so that they can fully engage that part of their being. This is a wonderful conversation. You do not want to miss out sexual expression, just like all other facets of human beingness should be accessible to everyone who has interest in it. Some people are not interested in expressing their sexuality in any way, and that is also perfectly acceptable. This life is yours. The body you are in is yours and you should embody in a way that feels comfortable to you. And that certainly includes how you express your sexuality. Let's get right into it. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So I'm excited that you're here. The whole point of the show is to talk about all these different entry points to happiness and to pleasure. And when it comes to sex, there's so much, it's so fraught, you know, there's so many issues that most people have around sex and feeling entitled to pleasure, but then also feeling like it's only accessible under certain conditions. And when we were talking before we started recording, it just really struck me your concept of how sex is accessible to everyone whether or not they're partnered. So before we get into all that, can you just tell us a little bit about this alter ego, Diva Darling, and how you came to be who you are right now? Absolutely. 
So I've been a performer all my life. And for a really long time, I had wanted to get into burlesque and I was a big fan. And I don't really even know why it took me as long as it did. But I just stayed kind of on the fan side for a long time. And then I joined a troupe. It was a DC's queer burlesque troupe, the DC Girly Show. And we performed at phase one, which was at the time DC's longest running lesbian bar, which sadly is no longer there. And it was an amazing experience to perform there all the time. The audiences were just so full of love and so diverse and they just celebrated everything that we did. And to be able to get up on stage and be as exhibitionist as I wanted and as creative as I wanted and to be openly sexual in a way that, frankly, fat girls are not often allowed to be, was really just life-changing for me. And I was finding that I was having great conversations with audience members afterwards. You know, they'd be talking about like, wow, you know, I feel like empowered to do stuff that I've wanted to do. Or they'd be asked, how do you find the confidence to get up on stage and do it? And it was just like this really, you know, like this rich extra part of the whole experience for me. And so I kind of found myself along that trajectory, moving into just the the sex positive realm in general. And I ended up doing marketing for Lotus Blooms, which I still do, which is a uh, women-owned, education-focused, very sex-positive adult boutique in here in the D.C. area in Old Town Alexandria. And in the course of that, I started a blog for them. I started teaching classes, mostly kink classes with them. And I was writing for the blog a lot. So I was doing a lot of like sex education there. And I was learning a tremendous amount by being involved with them and particularly learning what people who go into a sex shop who don't often do that, like what's going on in their minds. Because to me, like Mm. I was so comfortable with sexuality and being on stage and taking off my clothes and like all this kind of stuff that the idea that it would be terrifying to someone to go into an, you know, an adult boutique was like, oh yeah, like, I guess that's what I was like, you know, the first time I did as well. And it just gave me like a whole different perspective. And then in the course of all of this, I kind of fell backwards into initially co-producing, and now I solo produce a show called Smut Slam DC, which is a first-person, real-life storytelling open mic that's all about sex. It's a show where audience members get up on stage, and we have a monthly theme, but you don't have to stick to the theme, and everybody just tells like a five-minute story about their sex life. And we have uh, what we call a fuck bucket. And the fuck bucket is where people can write down anonymous questions or confessions and put them in. And then as the MC will read them in between storytellers. And so I'll answer sex ed questions on the fly from stage and I'll be reading people's secret confessions and things like that. So it just put me in this whole new role where, you know, for the last five years, I've been doing this every month to big audiences, very queer audiences, very trans heavy audiences, very diverse in a lot of ways, and really just needing to be completely on my game about just the full range of sexuality, because I never know what's going to come up, what people are going to talk about on stage that I might need to address, like what people are going to ask that I, you know, should be able to answer. And I was getting very involved with kind of the sex positive community and going to conferences and stuff like that. So really just kind of grew out of, you know, like kind of nowhere. Like this wasn't necessarily the trajectory that I was intending to take, but, you know, it was great. Like once I got on it, I was like, hell yeah, I've been obsessed with sex all my life. Like (laughs) why not follow and see where it goes, right? Oh, that's beautiful. And I love that there's a fuck bucket because there are so many people who are not going to feel comfortable getting up on the stage. Because everybody's totally different. 
And especially around this area, some people love to share their experiences openly and some people are just very shy. And sometimes I think there's kind of a fine line between what you want to hold sacred and that's why you don't reveal it and what you are hiding. But, you know, I'm sure both of those factors play in when people go to that type of event. So you say you're obsessed with sex your whole life. Were you raised in a sex positive environment? Like what type of sex education did you get as a kid? It was a weird mix because I was raised in a Catholic family. My parents uh, are fairly conservative and got more so over the years. So there was a lot of that, you know, Catholic messaging about, you know, sex is sinful and this and that, like whatever, and, you know, issues about queerness and, and stuff like that. But at the same time, my mom had been raised so sheltered that she was really determined to do better with me and to make me be independent and free thinking and empowered and whatever. And she may not have thought that all the way through, like end up with like a queer witch daughter, like, hey, mom, like, <laughs> congratulations, it worked. But I remember I was like seven years old and we were visiting my cousins and my cousin, who I think was a year younger than me, actually, he told me how his mom and dad went in the bathroom and made his baby sister and uh, apparently told me some detail. Um, I don't actually I remember it more from my mom talking about it than from it happening. I was fascinated by this. I thought this was the most amazing thing I'd ever heard. So I went home and I started telling all my friends about this, like, incredible thing that I'd learned. So their mom started calling my mom going, like, what is your daughter telling our kids? So my mom, to her credit, sat me down and was like, okay, if you're going to talk about things being sexy or, like, you're going to talk about that, like, you need to really know, like, what that's about and, like, you know, when you can talk about it, when it's appropriate. And she was so unflappable. And she was like, kind of explained it. And she was like, you can ask me anything. And the one thing I remember, I was like, what does it feel like, you know, like for a penis to go into a vagina? And she answered, you know, and wow, because um, I did that is not a question I would expect from a seven-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. And she was Yeah. She kept it together. Yeah. She was like, totally. She was like, well, it just feels like something warm sliding inside of you and it feels really nice. And you know, something that adults do. And I was like, all right. And yeah, so it wasn't like anyone was encouraging me to, you know, go out and embrace my sexuality or whatever, but my parents were very open about being in love and the fact that they had sex a lot. Like, you know, they kind of, wanted us to feel like that was like a normal part of life and not something that you had to like hide from the kids entirely. So like they would joke about it and, you know, stuff like that. And yeah. And then beyond that, it was like my own curiosity, like finding my dad's playboys and my mom's bodice ripper novels. And like, I can remember sitting on the steps to the attic with the dictionary, looking up every sex term that I could think of. (laughs) Just like, and were they all there? Like the all the clinical ones, yeah, like clitoris okay. and orgasm, and so I was like, "Oh my god, like this is amazing!" <laughs> <laughs> now, when did you realize your queerness, or when did that even come on your radar that that's another way that humans are sexual? You know, in retrospect, like I really should have known so much earlier than I did. The the thing that I think should have tipped me off was that when I was little and I would get coloring books, like I'd get like Disney coloring books. The first thing I would do with any one of them is turn to all the pages of the princesses and color their lips red. Like I was obsessed with the pretty princess's lips. And I'm like, I feel like maybe that was a hint, you know? 
it's it's so hard to tell the difference because right. the gender norms here anyway are so relaxed around women yeah. appreciating the beauty of other women and because yeah. we're hypersexualized it's normal for everyone to see women as sex objects whether or not right. they're attracted to them so i do think it's hard to realize like oh my interest is greater than other people's interests. Yeah. Like, there's a gap there. Like I can remember being in high school or shortly thereafter and fantasizing about, you know, like a cute girl I had known at school. And I used to read the, this was back when the, well, okay, back when there was Village Voice and back when the Village Voice had personals. And I'd read through the personals and sometimes I'd look at the women ones and just like, you know, like I never did anything about it, but I just kind of thought about it. And I looked at a lot of women focused porn again, like I, I liked looking at the guys too, but I was like, oh man, that woman, you know, but I didn't really explore it until I was in my early twenties and I was already partnered to a cis guy and who I'm still with. And thank God we were polyamorous <laughs> because I, you know, I was making like a whole lot of discoveries about myself at once. And I remember we're lying in bed and we're talking about like fantasies and, and things. And I'm just like very timidly confessing like that I thought about women sometimes. And I was like, honey, I, I think I might be bisexual. And he was like, awesome. Like, you know, be you and was totally supportive of it. Has always encouraged me to explore my sexuality, my identity, like anything that I want to. So, you know, thank God for that. I, I hope that I would have done that still if I was on my own, but it was really just made such a difference to have a partner there who was like, yeah, you need to, you know, be who you truly are. I was yeah. so accepting of that. Oh, that's fantastic. And I do think there are more couples that have mixed orientation than we realize because yeah. people will just assume if you're mm -hmm. in a relationship that looks like that makes people think you're straight passing then everybody thinks you are and then there's that whole other layer of people feeling like bisexuals are not gay enough mm -hmm. and then straight people just constantly telling bisexuals that it's some kind of phase no matter how old you are like yeah. <laughs> it's outrageous we're thinking that your orientation changes based on who you're partnered with. Right, exactly. You know, Whereas like, no straight man has ever said, oh, I'm single now. I wonder if I'm still straight. Yeah, it exactly. It has nothing to do with who you're partnered with. And like sometimes I wonder, was I sort of propelled further down like the sex educator path and like doing the show and whatever because it was an opportunity to be like really flamboyantly like, I'm queer. Like I feel like I'm like wearing a neon sign all the time. Like, hey, I'm a queer person. You know, because I'm like, if you look at me and my, you know, my nesting partner, like we look like a straight couple. And I'm like, yeah. no, don't assume that. It, it's so funny. Yes, it does feel like sometimes like you almost want to wear a sign. It's so funny. Growing up, I, I had a really close set of friends who are biracial and I would always make fun of them for how quick they were to tell people they were black. Because they were so fair, you couldn't see right, it. Right. But now I understand. And I've taken it back. We're still friends. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know why I gave you such a hard time about it. It's very, it's a strange experience when you pass as one thing and you identify as another and you strongly want to be connected to your actual community. Mm -hmm. It kind of does sound weird probably to the people who are obviously presenting as a member of that community right. that you're like, Hey, I'm gay. I'm gay. I'm gay. Did everybody. 
<laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one. Like this is the thing that yeah, happens. It so really it, the sex positive space, fascinating sex ed in this country is generally speaking trash. So there are a lot of adults <laughs> that don't even know where to get started. Don't understand like that there's more to life than missionary. And it's hard to even imagine what a different way of expressing your sexuality might look like because what we see is typically the same thing. You would have thought with the advent of pornography being available readily on the internet, that there would be more diversity when it comes to the content, but there really isn't that much. Like I know of a couple, and I don't even know if these still exist, of studios where the partners are all people who at some point were legit together in real life. Maybe not in a relationship, but have had sex before. And so it's not like this theatrical, very artificial type of sex. And it's uh, trans people, lesbians, like everybody. And I, I wish I could remember the name of the company. I'll put it in the show notes. But you don't see a lot of people producing that kind of content because people have all these conflicted feelings about, is it feminist? Is it degrading? Is it this? Is it that? Whatever. Right. And then you need the resources too. So what have you found as far as what the knowledge deficits are that you're hearing from people? Like, what do people really want to know? It's so interesting to me because so much of the circles that I move in, like my social circles and a lot of the audience that come to my shows and like stuff like that, they're people who are very knowledgeable, very progressive, uh, very self-aware, like have invested a lot of time in learning and exploring and that kind of thing. So I just, I forget you know, so often how different it is for so many people. And I had such a like bucket of water in the face kind of moment. I went to another event that's in the area that's basically, it was intended for women to come together and drink wine and talk about sex and just have conversations. Like I knew the facilitator, she'd been a judge on my panel before. And just one day I was like, you know what, I want to check this out. And she was kind of facilitating a lot of the conversation. And there had to have been close to 20 women in the room. And I was shocked by the difference. Like they were talking about who in your life can you talk about sex with? And they were struggling to think of people like even friends. And I was like, mm. who don't I talk to about sex with? Like, I'm like, people on the street, I'm like, hey, did you know that orgasms are great? You know, and, <laughs> Like they're very shyly confessing, you know, like almost all of them identified as straight, but had had bi-curious leanings and didn't have any idea what to do about it. We're like afraid to even talk about it. It was like just some of the like so inhibited. And they, and I was grateful that the space was there because it was a place where they could start opening up and like start feeling comfortable with that. So I feel like that's like one huge thing is just being okay talking about the stuff that people feel so embarrassed about so often. You know, it's just, that's a huge starting place. And then the other thing that really opened my eyes, I've been working with uh, a professor at American University for a couple of years now, and I'll bring their, the students from their class to my show. And, you know, and then they can debrief about it afterward. And I also like go in and help the students with their presentations, like give them some advice and whatever. And they're all learning how to become sex educators. And they're all pretty early in their college career. So they're still pretty young. Like I kind of, I had to get special dispensation to have like 18 year olds at my show because it's in a bar. So the first time that I went to see their, their final presentation night, which by the way, it was so great. I was like, oh, little baby sex educators. I love <laughs> so much. Like it was so happy. <laughs> And I was expecting to see a range of 
like stuff about being trans and advanced stuff about consent and like, you know, kink and like, uh, you know, I was just kind of assuming they'd all be, they'd be talking about polyamory and like, cause so, those things are so much more common, you know, than they were like when I was in, in high school and whatever, like being called gay was still such an insult and I'm sure it is some places, but you know, it's, there's a little more broader acceptance now, I think uh, in a lot of places. So I was just expecting them to be like really sophisticated and instead they're doing the presentations about STIs and methods of birth control. And there were like three or four presentations about how to know that you're in a healthy relationship or how to know that you're in an unhealthy relationship and what to do and like how to set boundaries and how to extricate yourself if you think you might be in a bad situation. And listening to these kids talk about, you know, they're designing this presentation for like the the 14, 15 year olds that they were because they're saying like, we were thrown into the dating world and nobody taught us how to date anybody. Nobody taught us mm. what it meant to be in a relationship, how to know what your sexuality is, how to know if you want to have sex, like how to know if you have a good partner. It seemed like such basic stuff to me. And I was like, geez, like we are really like failing. I mean, we're f- definitely failing kids in this country, but like we're kind Absolutely. of failing all of our ourselves, you know, with, just the the limitations that we're trying to put on like, oh, you know, we can't talk about these things and like that's bad and wrong and, you know. Yeah. It's amazing the gap because with other things, people always talk about how they want to share their failures and protect other people from making the same mistakes they made. Yeah. But then when it comes to sex and relationships, no one wants to say anything. Nobody wants to tell the babies the truth and they make them make all of their own mistakes that are a hundred percent preventable. One of the biggest qualms I have with how sex ed was handled in my school. One, it was literally, this is the best example of how it was handled. There was a day I remember in fifth grade, mind you, some of my classmates were already pregnant. So fifth Mm -hmm. grade, late, very late on the sex stuff. And at least my parents, even though they're very, very, very conservative, had at least given us a lot of basic like biological breakdown of like where babies come from. They were on high alert about child molesters. So they wanted us to know like, this is a personal area and don't worry about it until you're married. That's not very helpful, but at least we had some concept of what would be a sketchy thing for an adult to do. And Consent is always required for certain parts of the body. Okay, fine. At least we got those basic out of the way. But the teacher almost broke her neck running to shut off the VHS when the tape started to explain what the clitoris was. So they wanted us to know that sex was for procreation and that it was extremely dangerous and could expose you to all of these deadly diseases that you couldn't get rid of. They showed us countless slideshows of like insane World War II type of STIs that went untreated, like that era, Mm -hmm. like things that would never happen here in the States if you had healthy enough of a relationship with your own body to go to the doctor and be treated. Like it could never get to that point, but that's all they showed us. And they didn't want us to know that Sometimes sex feels amazing. Didn't, right. It was it was top secret, you know. Yeah. Um, so they only taught abstinence. And so people, when they started actually dating and having sex, 
one of the biggest challenges was how do you negotiate condom usage? I never even heard that term until I was like 22, I think. And I went to get screened for HIV for the first time and Mm -hmm. talking to a sex educator there. I'm like, yeah, that would have been helpful. You know, when you're filling out the questionnaire to assess your risk level and you've just been having to figure everything out for yourself in the early days of the internet or like going through message boards, which right, takes forever. Yeah. And when you keep having to check yes and you're like, oh no, like I didn't think I was that high risk for everything. Like, oh, was I supposed to not do that? What, oh, was that not okay? Yeah, a real eye opener, just a disaster. So yeah. what you do is beyond crucial. And it's exciting to know that they're multiplying, like that sex educators are multiplying. Yeah. We need you. <laughs> I think the other thing that I find as far as like the the gap of information is that there are a lot of myths out there. Like a lot of the stuff that I end up writing for the Lotus Blooms blog ends up talking about various myths, like huge myths around like, for example, cis men who like butt play, who like having their butts played with mm-hmm. and like the number of men who are afraid that it will make them gay. And I'm like, okay, first of all, like, let's start with the fact that would it be so terrible if you were like, let's examine that. That's a whole thing. But no, it doesn't. Like, you just have a lot of nerve endings there and everybody has a butt. Butts aren't gay. Everyone has a butt. It's the least gendered part of our sexual anatomy. (laughs) I don't know where people are going for their information these days because not so long ago, you know, if you were on Craigslist and you saw pegging, you would have looked that up and you would have been like, oh, this is a thing a lot of people like to do. Right. But where are people getting their info these days now that Craigslist is done? Right. Yeah. Just got to hope that you land on something good on the (laughs) internet. It is so interesting. There's so many things to get into. I know like the way I approach sex when I said, you know, celibacy is for the birds and this whole wait till you're married thing. I just don't know. I got to see some things when I leaned heavy into actual research. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you remember Nina Hartley. Oh, I I know Nina. Yeah, she's wonderful. Do you know her? Know her? Yeah. God. We go to Woodhull Sexual Freedom Summit every year. And like I met her. I was performing in the burlesque show. And after I got done, she came over and gave me a hug and told me I was brilliant. And I was like, well, I'm like, oh my God, you can die now. Right. Right? And then she was our bucket babe when we did smut slam at Woodhull. And like, she's just amazing. I I love, I only see her there, but yeah, she's so good. For anybody who doesn't know, Nina is like an OG porn star who actually loved porn and sex and equally enjoyed engaging with men and women. And now she's a nurse and a sex educator. How perfect of a combo is that? So I read everything I could find of hers and so helpful. Like just the way she explains things. Brilliant. Like a porn star that becomes a nurse that becomes a sex educator. Perfect. So yeah, I'm like, let's just, let's study all the things. And you're right. Everybody has, but there are lots of nerves there. (laughs) A lot of people like that. Like I don't know why we're still so weird about these things. What do you think is the biggest barrier to people really having pleasure when they have sex? Because having an orgasm is not something everybody's even familiar with. Right. What is Um, the issue? I think in a very broad sense, I think it's almost impossible 
to come of age in our culture, maybe any culture, like, I, I don't know, there are some that are healthier than ours, but I'm not really sure anyone is perfect to come of age in this culture and not have huge sexual wounds, no matter what your orientation, no matter your experience level, no matter your body type, your race, your age, like anything, we all have our burdens of shame. And we all have this idea that there's a right way to be sexual and a right way to have sex and kind of just a right way to be in order to be worthy of sex. And it's so hard to talk about these things that I think one of the big problems is that we end up carrying the stuff around and it takes on truth to us, you know? So we're walking around thinking like, I'm not fuckable or, you know, just any number of, of like myths that we've ingrained so deeply in ourselves that it feels like a fact instead of, you know, just something that we need to heal and deal with. And think sometimes you don't even know what you don't know. You know, you just have all this stuff and you're like, so, you know, kind of caught up in your anxieties and your shame and like, you know, just trying to have something that feels good and feels real. And you don't even necessarily get to the point of questioning and saying, are all these things correct? And like, is there more out there? And, you know, that kind of thing. How do you recommend that somebody start working through that, that feeling like there are requirements for you to be worthy of sex. And can you explain how you view masturbation and its importance as far as enjoying or engaging and connecting with your own sexuality? Yeah, I think one of the most important things, one of the best things that anybody can do for themselves is to spend some actual time trying to learn your own body. There are so many people out there who don't really experience sexual touch outside of a relationship and may never really have learned how their body works or what feels good. Like it's just kind of like what happens in those individual relationships. And there are a lot of people who don't masturbate at all. And there are a lot of people who kind of do it in a very, you know, functional way. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to get off, but it's not anything real or meaningful. It's just kind of a means to an end. And it can be like, there's nothing wrong with get off and getting a quick one off the wrist. Like we all do it. But if that's like the beginning and end of it, like, you're probably leaving a lot of pleasure on the table. So I think one of the healthiest things to do, one of the healthiest places to begin, you know, like you did, just like start reading and researching. There are so many great sites out there. Kinkly.com, not only do they have an amazing blog themselves that a lot of sex educators write for, but they have their list of top 100 sex blogging superheroes, which Lotus Bloom's blog got on this year. So there's this like vetted list of people who are publishing good content regularly and maybe a little self plug, but like going to something like my show, like uh, to Smut Slam DC, which is a franchise of Smut Slam International. So there's you know shows all over the world. That's a place where you can hear experiences that other people have. You can hear people talking about their hangups. You can hear people talking about the things that didn't quite go right. They can tell they're talking about the things that do go really well. Like so, it's very eye opening because it's this full range of perspectives about where people are getting pleasure, you know, what's holding them back, the different ways that you can have sex, like some of them you might never have heard of, you know. So I really think being able to talk about it in whatever context and sharing stories and having discussion circles and things like that is incredibly valuable for breaking down that shame and starting to recognize like, oh yeah, that's an area where I really have some hangups. 
And then sort of combining that with the self-exploration and how do you like to be touched? What kind of intensity do you like? You know, is it easy for you to come? Do you come multiple times? Is it really difficult? Do you feel like you enjoy the pleasure and like the orgasm is gravy happens, but you're okay if it doesn't? Like that's totally valid too. And kind of just really exploring your full body because there are so many erogenous zones. And when we think about masturbation, we always think about like going, you know, right for the genitals. But you can touch yourself anywhere on your body that feels good and, you know, and, and it's solo sex. So you can start having the knowledge that you need so that when you are with a partner, first of all, you're able to tell them like, I like to be touched this way or, hey, like that feels great. If you move half an inch to the left, it's going to be amazing. Or, you know, this is something that actually doesn't feel good at all and I don't want it. So, yeah, learning to talk about sexuality in very frank terms with partners is a difficult thing, but also incredibly necessary. It's like these are all like kind of low leaping off points and it's like it's kind of the journey of a lifetime. But yeah, it's enough to kind of get you going there. Yeah, I like that you have specific phrases that you can use when you're talking to a partner about what you like and what you don't like. Because I know some people are very sensitive to anything that seems like a criticism, especially during a sexual encounter. You know, you may worry about your partner's feelings when you're trying to tell them like to the left, to the right, to the like if you give <laughs> many instructions. So I like the concept that sometimes it's the experience, not necessarily the orgasm. Like there doesn't have to be a goal. Like sex can fill all these different needs and also look all these different ways because not everybody's able-bodied. You can still have sex if you're paralyzed from the waist down. I remember somebody telling me that they were told after a traumatic brain injury that, you know, sex all happens in your mind anyway. And that was no consolation to a young man that now couldn't have erections on demand. But he's like, you know, it was years ago. And now it honestly, I get it. Like it's true. But I had to work through all of my ideas about what is sex and get to the point where I understood, you know, it's more than just penetration. It's more than just genitals. And I think that's a big thing for people who don't enjoy penetration at all, because that's the only way we usually see sex portrayed in popular media. Some people may feel like, oh, well, did I have sex? I mean, even Clinton is a perfect example of this straight person who said, oral sex is not sex. And like half the country was like, yeah, that sounds right. You know, it's like (laughs) lesbians everywhere. were like, I beg to differ. (laughs) So technically that means like, if you're a gold star, it's not even the right expression. Like you've never had sex by that definition, which is obviously moronic. And it's good to have diversity in your life because people will call things out that you don't even know it's ridiculous. Like you don't know what you know, but I remember telling someone like, well, if you didn't take your clothes off at all, then you you can't have sex. Cause I, to me, skin to skin is important. And they're like, well, because of their trauma informed, you know, life, they don't ever disrobe during sexual encounters. And they're like, and my sex is real. So you know, back it up. You're being offensive. (laughs) I'm like, oh, you know, I never thought about that. So don't be down on yourself. If a partner is telling you the way that you want to have intimacy is not sex, you probably need to dismiss them. You know, like what do you do if the person you're with has a limited concept of consent? 
And they don't know that just because they like to be touched a certain way and they were hoping that you would like the same thing doesn't mean it's going to happen because there are some women who just love breast play and others that absolutely pretend they're not there. Don't touch them. Yeah. yeah, So how do you navigate that? I think one of the things we really need to get rid of is this idea of what it means to be a great lover. Cause I think kind of traditionally, you know, it's such bragging rights kind of thing. Like, oh yeah, like I, I know my way around a whatever set of genitals. Like, I'm like, I, I always make them come really hard, you know, like, and it's always like they have their set of skills and techniques and this is guaranteed. And it's like the actual great lover is the one who goes into every sexual encounter with beginner mind, basically. I mean, yeah, you've got your experience, you've got your skills, like whatever you understand, hopefully the functions of the human body, but you go into it and you're like, I'm making no assumptions. Tell me how you like to be touched. Tell me, do you like penetration? Tell me, do you like oral? Do you like having oral done to you? Do you like having your ass played with? Just having these conversations, whether it's beforehand or, you know, in the moment, first of all, it's incredibly hot. Like we really need to amp up making that, like normalize how hot that is. And I that, think it could be like a board game or something or some kind of dating type right? of game. Yeah. Maybe you need to make that. Yeah. Oh, oh, I like this idea. But yeah, you know, to be asking questions and, and trying different things and making just not making assumptions about how somebody's body is going to work and what they're going to like and what they're not going to like. I actually think the kink world has a lot to contribute in that regard because there's so many different activities and levels of activities, whether it's psychological, whether it's physical, is it hard, is it soft? Like there's so much going on there that like seeing that you're going to negotiate is going to be like a very detailed conversation. So I find a lot of kinksters, not all by any means, but a lot of kinksters are very good at not making assumptions and going in and going like, all right, like let's start from, you know, ground from ground zero and, and figure this out as we go and figure out if we're compatible and how we can make each other happy. So yeah, I, I really think that that's the first thing that we have to do to unpack all of this. And we also really need to get rid of the assumption, like you were saying, that penetrative sex is real sex, you know, and that nothing else counts. And, you know, you can have sex with somebody, even if one of you has a penis and one of you has a vagina, like you don't have to penetrate that vagina with your penis ever. And you guys are still having plenty of sex. And you know what? If you both felt good, and you had a great time and you feel fulfilled and nobody's going home going like, boy, I wish I had this other thing. Well, then it's nobody else's business what happened and nobody else's place to judge how real your sex was because it's it's real and it's valid. And I also think that that really takes a lot of pressure off of your traditional expectations. First of all, a lot of men, uh, let me qualify, a lot of cis men have erectile dysfunction and have a lot of hangups about you know, whether or not they're a real man because of that. And even if they don't actually have ED, they might not be able to sustain as long as they want. They might not be super well endowed. Like cis men have so much shame around their genitals. Like it's really kind of heartbreaking actually. And, and contributes so much to toxic masculinity, which is, you know, a rant for another day. But (laughs) Well, it's fascinating because people, I think when they are the beneficiaries of a system of oppression, Mm -hmm. they assume that it doesn't hurt them at all. Right. But sexism hurts everybody and it does does a lot of damage to men. Yeah. And that idea that male sexuality 
it exists in this very small box and so few real human cis men live up to these ridiculous expectations yeah. and they have all this shame around it yeah. and they can't even enjoy sex because it's all about a performance. They're trying to validate their exactly. identity and that's a lot of pressure to put on the person that you're with, which explains why so many people feel like they must fake an orgasm because their partner's mm-hmm. going to really feel like trash if you don't. Right. Like it's so many levels. Yeah. So it's a barrier to true intimacy. Yeah. And we need to normalize the the fact that orgasm is wonderful. You should definitely try to have that if that's something that you want, but that it's not proof of good sex. It's not proof that you had sex. You know, it's not, you're not undesirable if your partner did not have an orgasm. Because um, there's sometimes that, you know, it's just not happening. There's some people for whom it's so difficult and takes so long that they honestly feel better just not worrying about it and just kind of enjoying what they're doing. And if it happens, it happens great. But, you know, just not making it a goal. Because, yeah, like we, we need to be in a place where we can be truly honest and truly intimate with the people that we're, you know, sharing our sexuality with and not be bound up in like, what, you know, our egos want or what society says we should do or what magazine ideals are, you know, like, am I following Cosmo's top 10 tips for hot sex? Like probably if you do, you'll (laughs) be in the hospital, but (laughs) some of their, oh my goodness. I just think of all the problematic things I've read over the years. And you, you don't question these things when you're just looking for information. You're like, how could something so popular be so full of trash? But yeah, like so many of their positions, it's like, what athlete, even when I was so, so young, like Mm -hmm. nobody could do this stuff. And I remember I actually did this once. I literally sent a screenshot of the article with all these different positions Mm -hmm. and I put all the work on the, on the male partner. I'm like, yeah, I want you to do all of these. (laughs) <laughs> and I'll, I'll see you at this time, right? You know, like <laughs> ridiculous. And in that super toxic, just, oh, that space I was in, he really felt like, oh, oh my God, I have to do this stuff. And yeah. am I strong enough <laughs> to do all these acrobatic, ridiculous things? And how mad is she going to get? Right. <laughs> I don't like, it's a whole Horrible, toxic situation. Everybody throw out your cosmos. I know they're trying to make progress. I did see something the other day um, where at least it wasn't all like all head all the time. But it's interesting, even the damage that I think that super cis hat porn has done Mm -hmm. because they don't bother to tell you that they keep pausing. Like they keep stopping the filming. Yeah. This yeah. man did not maintain an erection for two right. hours. Get right, serious. Right. Like, you no, know? no, they didn't go into a dry asshole. <laughs> exactly. God, no. Exactly. And, and the chance is that everything lines up just right every time. There's right. no weird noises. Those are positions that are camera friendly. Yeah. I remember reading a book about sex positions, like this wide range of sex positions. And on it, like most of the book, like the some of the surrounding essays and stuff was really good about like being trans inclusive and, you know, using progressive language and stuff like that. But I'm looking through and I'm like, you know, all the illustrations are thin, able-bodied people. And if you're going to talk about a full range of sex positions, let's talk about positions for fat people, for people who have bellies, for... 
people who are radically different heights for, you know, people who are disabled. You know, there's so many things that you can get into because like, honestly, like most people, you're going to go back to your same few favorite positions probably like you'll bust out every now and then but i think we've all got our tried and true you know it's like you don't need 50 positions to be like a great lover kind of thing yeah exactly and i love the idea of getting rid of the pressure to even be a great lover and to have a clear idea of what you want from the experience do you want connection do you want intimacy like if you don't know what the goal is for you and what is meaningful to you how will you get that And it's been interesting to me lately, I'm becoming more and more aware of people who under no circumstances want sex of any kind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And so that's a whole other group of people that I thought the numbers were lower than they actually were. But because people conform to society's expectations to have partnership in life, to have company or to not be ridiculed for not, you know, partnering up, people just, they do it because they feel like they're supposed to. It's for the other person. It's not for them. And does that come up at the smut slams, like people who just genuinely are asexual, but maybe not aromantic? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, we get the full spectrum. I honestly think that one of the most wounding things of all of the social wounds that we're given around sex, the idea that you have to be validated by other people in order to you know, truly be a sexual being is so harmful in so, so many ways. Like the sense of entitlement that it creates, the sense of shame that it creates if you don't have a partner. You know, the fact that particularly when you're talking about women, the way that we measure the value of a human being by how many people want to fuck them. Like it's horribly, horribly Mm. dysfunctional. And the soapbox that I always get on is my personal philosophy about it is that sex is an individual thing. It starts as a solo activity. You have a body and you have various ways that you can pleasure your own body. You have total access to sexual pleasure at any time that you want it in any form that you want it and to your full range of fantasies and desires and or lack of desires. You know, like that's totally valid too. If you don't ever want to have sex, that doesn't make you a loser. It doesn't make you undesirable or weird. You know, it's just another way of being. So that sexuality just starts with you. You may or may not ever share it with somebody else. And it's great when you can. I think intimacy and partnership is a tremendous, wonderful experience. But I think if we're looking at this as like coming from the wellspring of ourselves and originating with ourselves, then we don't have this mentality of, well, I don't get to have sex because nobody will let me have sex with them. And I'm a loser because nobody will have sex with me. Well, have sex with yourself. Like solo sex is still real sex. And it's nobody's business, you know, whether you're partnered to another person or not, whether you ever have been. I'd also like to discard the whole concept of virginity, which is such an artificial construct, too. Please give more details (laughs) on that. First of all, all of the... I'm going to give you the platform. (laughs) I'm just going to get up here and bang this drum, right? So all of the uh, toxic stuff that we've been taught about sexuality, like about penetrative sex being real sex and what qualifies as real sex and what doesn't, all ties into this whole concept of virginity. And first of all, let's clarify the term virginity because that means complete within yourself. You know, it's come to mean that you have not had sex with another person, but 
what would it also has come to mean in that context is that you are not a sexual being because you have not had sex with somebody else. And I maintain that if you have touched yourself, if you've given yourself pleasure, if you have masturbated, if you have explored on your own, if you've even just fantasized, you are already a sexual being and that you don't need an initiation with another person in order to validate who you are as a sexual being in order to validate your sexuality or validate your desires or give you some kind of street cred or anything like that. And what's super toxic, especially is for cis women, this idea that you are not a sexual being unless your hymen is broken. Hymens come in all different shapes and sizes. Frequently, they do not get in the way of having sex at all. There are plenty of people who, you know, it's either non-existent or it's like broken through physical activity earlier in life or it stretches. Emily Nagoski, who is a fabulous sex educator, has an entire blog post, I I think two actually, that's like debunking all these myths about hymens. And it's just great reading. So we have this poisonous idea that a cis woman has to undergo a painful and bloody experience in order to truly be a sexual being. And that's horrible. That was not my experience. I did not have pain or bleeding or like trauma or anything. Like I had a wonderful lover who, you know, guided me very slowly through everything, made sure I was okay every step of the way. And I wish everybody had that the first time that they, you know, were actually with somebody else. But you don't even have to be with somebody else to be penetrated for the first time. You can use a dildo. It's still sex. So- I literally have no clue when my hymen was broken. Like I didn't notice it. Right. So maybe there was some spotting or something. And I was like, oh, is this period time? What's happening? Who knows? Because when I first had penetrative sex, no, there was no proof. Right. And it right. wasn't uncomfortable. I mean, maybe awkward, but another thing that I think cishet men don't get any credit for is how many of them are absolutely nothing like the lies that are told when it's like the sexuality driving everything that they do and Mm -hmm. them wanting no connection and them just wanting to rack up numbers and perform and to be seen as a stud and being really cavalier about their partner's feelings. Absolutely not my experience. The way I've seen sexuality portrayed and thinking too, I was a kid in the eighties and the nineties. Think about all the horrible rapey trash that was passed Mm -hmm. off as teen movies. Yeah. And just the disgusting way male sexuality or het male sexuality was portrayed. Yeah totally made them all look like a bunch of disgusting monsters, pigs, didn't see women as individuals, just wanting to fuck everything in sight, um, no regard for their feelings or their comfort. Totally doesn't connect to my reality. I've seen that Mm -hmm. so many men, if you're cis and you're het, you are not allowed physical touch outside of sexuality. Right. If you're a real huggy dude, you know, nobody likes that. (laughs) Your friends aren't going to hug you. So I see a lot of them waiting for a partner for them to finally have some physical intimacy. And it means so much more than just the sex. 
I was so, thinking the other day that I desperately want to see like a Hallmark movie or like a rom-com or whatever, but instead of a woman with her girlfriends and like, oh my God, like, is he going to propose whatever? It's a guy with his guy friends and they're just like talking about the wedding they dream of and the girl that they want to marry. And it's totally all the same tropes and maybe, okay, maybe a little more healthy, but you know, it's like all the same like structure or whatever, but it's just focused on, you know, men wanting emotional connection. So I'm like, I know so many women who are super sexual who are like, I don't have time for commitment. Like, I'm not into having relationships right now. And I know so many men who are just like, oh, like, I want to be loved and bring me flowers. <laughs> like, you know, they're so yeah, soft. I love that. Absolutely. That's been my experience that I find far more men who want connection and who are naturally monogamous. And so many women that are not naturally monogamous and are willing to, because that's what social norms still dictate for most people. And if your partner wants monogamy and you feel like you're natural poly by nature, that could be an issue. <laughs> well, and even the poly guys that I know, so many of them, they're all about the nesting and the sweetness. And it's all like everyone's sitting around a kitchen table, like, you know, having a great time together and the romance and like stuff like that. So even if you want a lot of lovers, it's not necessarily just about hookup culture. Right. Yeah, actually, poly people seem to be way more romantic than the average. <laughs> I like to think so. <laughs> I'm a hyper romantic myself. So yeah. yeah can you, just speaking of that real quickly, can you explain a lot of people think that swingers and poly people are, are the same and they're like worlds apart. So can you maybe debunk some of the things that people think about polyamory? Like for one, it being less emotionally intense than a monogamous relationship, which I know is not true. <laughs> so the interesting thing about swingers and people who are doing polyamory, like some of the underlying philosophy is a little different because it is generally true that a lot of people in the swing community, they want to keep it to their play parties. They want to keep it physical. You know, it's like a recreational activity that they do with their community. And, you know, and it's also fairly true that a lot of polyamorous people are pretty invested in wanting to be able to have multiple relationships. But there's actually the Venn diagram. There's like a huge overlap mm. in there also with the kink community. So all of these things, you know, just interact with each other. So you'll find people who maybe started out as swingers and then kind of moved more into polyamory, but they still enjoy swinging parties. There are people who they identify as polyamorous, but they love the kind of free flowing atmosphere of swinger stuff. So really, anytime I see like a polyamorous person who's like, oh, we're not swingers. I'm like, you know what? Just... <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> Take a seat, you know, it's like when a burlesque performer is like, "I'm not a stripper. I'm classy." I'm like, "No, you are not." Burlesque is always classy. Just stop it. Like, <laughs> See, thank you for that clarification. Because yes, I've heard more from the poly people who are like, "I am not that," you know. Yeah. So that they would have wanted me to say it's a world apart. But yes, right. I love the idea that there is no one way. Yeah, and. I people find their own way. And also the polyamorous world has plenty of its own drama and dysfunction. So like, let's not get on our high horses about how much better <laughs> we are than anybody else. I think people are a little better informed nowadays about polyamory because I think it's been so much more like out kind of like a lot more articles and mainstream stuff about it. And there was uh, that reality show for like right, half a right. second. Yeah. <laughs> and I think one of the biggest misconceptions that's still out there is that polyamory is all one way, like that you basically want to have a 
you know, heterosexual monogamous marriage, but with a lot of people. And that's totally not true. First of all, there's a huge queer contingent and, you know, just all kinds of combinations going on in there. And second of all, not everybody wants to live together. Not everybody wants to live with a partner, period. Like there are plenty of people who kind of permanently identify as solo poly. Like they want to have, you know, what partners they have and be able to have them at the same time. But they're like, you know, the whole marriage thing is just not for me at all. You know, there are people who are identifying as relationship anarchists who are like, let's throw out this concept of the relationship escalator that, you know, everything has to be leading up to marriage, you know, and like, let's take every relationship on its own terms and enjoy it for what it is and not assign hierarchies and priority and, you know, things like that. And there are people like for me, a big part of being polyamorous is like, my friends who I'm not sexual or romantic with, that's part of my poly. Like the work that I do is part of my poly. Like it takes time and priority and I'm emotionally committed to it. So that's as much a part of my consideration of how much bandwidth I have for relationships and what my priorities are at any given time as the people that I'm romantically and sexually involved with. So very complex. And you can honestly, like, if you hear like somebody's polyamorous, you know, the temptation to make an assumption about what their life is like, is like, probably don't. <laughs> it yeah. So, so many different forms. That's so funny. So we love labels so much, but then it almost doesn't tell you much of anything. Right, right. Exactly. That's yeah. fascinating. Well, I love the way you present sexuality and you just embrace freedom and giving everybody room to find out what they really want. If there was one little bit of wisdom that you could share with all of the listeners, what would it be? I would say that if you are a sexual person, which not everybody is, prioritize discovering and fulfilling your sexual pleasure and trying to heal those cultural wounds and discover the things that, you know, are bringing you shame and giving you inhibitions and try to, you know, work on resolving that stuff and opening up using your words, you know, talking to your partner because it's so much better and so much healthier. And for those people who want sexuality in their lives, your whole life is healthier when you have a healthy sexuality and particularly one that doesn't depend on somebody else to provide you happiness. That is huge. That is huge. Thank you so much for coming on and thank you for sharing that. Where can we find you online? So if you want to see kind of my overall, like everything that I do, my main website is divinations.com. If you are specifically interested in Smutslam DC, you can go to dc.smutslam.com. Smutslam.com is for Smutslam International. So you can see our founder there and, you know, kind of see what else is going on around the world. And also, if you go to the lotusblooms.com, not only is it a great site to shop at, you can just click over to the blog and you can see lots and lots of stuff that I've written there under Eva Darling. Perfect. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I'm so glad to be here tonight. That was a fantastic conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. You may have noticed all of my guests are amazing. And that is one of the many reasons why you should be subscribed to the podcast. I have the links in the show notes. Make sure you get on the mailing list. You'll be the first to know about new episodes. You'll get alerts anytime there's a bonus episode. And those are coming because I've been tapping into so many fascinating people in the queer community and BIPOC communities who have healing messages to 
share. Health and happiness is for everybody, but it looks different for every one of us. And having a diverse array of guests helps us at least scratch the surface on all the different ways that that might show up for you and the listening audience. You can get on the mailing list at www.sendfox.com slash Dahlia Kinsey. That's D-A-L-I-A-K-I-N-S-E-Y. If you are sick and tired of digging through self-empowerment resources to find what applies to your lived experience, you need to be on the list. Make sure you join me again next time. I will have Stephen Andresano on the show. He is an audio mastermind, somebody with a background in theater and a fellow podcaster. We talk about how you engage with media that doesn't always love you back. As a queer person, as a person of color, this is an experience a lot of us have had. His jam is horror, and we talk about how horror has dealt with queer identities in the past and how it frequently interacts with queer identities now in the present and how he reconciles some of that with his love of Stephen King and other things in the horror genre. It's an awesome interview. As we come up on Halloween, it's a whole vibe, so you don't want to miss it. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited. For my queer folk, my trans, people of color, let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go.